Hello, everyone. This is Scott Livingston, and welcome to Leave Your Mark. Today, I am fortunate to be speaking with Matt Jordan, who is a talented and passionate performance professional in the world of elite sport. He currently serves as the Director of Sports Science, specifically in Strength and Power for Mountain Sports at the Canadian Sports Institute in Calgary. He has, for many years now, been a leader in Canada's sports performance community, representing an incredible blend of applied practitioner and sports scientist. His curiosity and passion allow him to be one of Canada's best at what he does, and because of that, he has influenced the success of a myriad of Olympic and performance athletes along the way. Beyond his resume, he is a wonderful partner and father of three kids. I've asked him to come on my show because he leads with character and humility, and he is indeed leaving a mark on the world. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me, Scotty. Yeah, it's good to have you, bud. You just got back from vacation, right? I sure did. Yeah, I had a good uh, good seven day. Actually, preceded the seven day shutdown. My wife and I went to Vancouver for the night and had a a nice couples couples uh, getaway. And then uh, we spent um, seven days up in the uh, Okanagan or Kootenay, sorry, um, up uh, up by the lake and just chilling out with family and relaxing. So you go you go there a lot. Is that that because there's family there and stuff? Or? Yeah, my my wife's father's uh partner uh she has a cabin up there that um you know basically has been uh sort of offered to us whenever you know kind of book it in so we try to try to maximize our time up there it's a nice easy drive and we have a we have a great time shut it down and relax and and uh that means a lot so Awesome. You look rested, which is good for you because yeah. I really work, work hard, buddy. Um, it's nice to have you uh, in this conversation. I don't know if you've listened to any of the ones I've done, but I'm really sort of examining people I respect and, uh, and enjoy being around, uh, t- the talking about the lives that they've lived and how sort of they've been influenced to become the person that they are. And that, funny enough, the story of our lives and how it, it sort of intertwined uh, with your dad and stuff is kind of cool. Uh, tell the listeners that um, you and I were sitting at dinner one time and I had gone to high school. We were both from Ottawa and, uh, and it just turned out that your, I, we discovered that your father had taught me geography in grade 10. I think it was, I know. It's pretty bizarre. It's so bizarre. <laughs> yeah. Small world. Your dad being a teacher, you growing up in Ottawa, what was, uh, was that hard to have a teacher as a dad or was it, uh, was it a benefit in some ways? No, I think it was a benefit. I mean, I actually noticed it on this, uh, this trip that we just took to the Kootenays um, because uh, I guess as a father now, you're trying to think about how you're going to influence your kids without, you know, explicitly telling them what to do all the time. And you're hoping that you're giving your kids like, I guess, the right messages. And I just noticed just spending time with my dad in the car, like, he's talking about the geography and the landscape and how, you know, important things in life and values. And you could just, and I was like, Oh yeah, geez, I, I remember this. I remember, I remember having that be a big part of my childhood was, you know, my dad um, sort of instilling, you know, healthy lifestyle and being active and, you know, taking care of your education and making sure that you, I spoke French and English cause that's a good skill to have. And all these things that, I'm just, you know, sort of summarizing with a couple of examples there, but I could, there was just a lot of, I think a lot of consciousness on his part about making sure that he was doing that. Cause as an educator, he, I guess, realized the value of it. So uh, he brought that into our house and, and I would say that it was definitely a positive, you know, it was great having, 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 having him have that mindset because it, it obviously rubbed off on me. So. Yeah. Well, as you look back at that, 
what at the time was it something you resented and now you've discovered the value in it or did do you think you always had a connection to the value in it um you know maybe maybe more so now looking back i probably see greater value in it um at the time i think you know it's i see it now with my 11 year old where you know hey kieran you know it's important to do x and you know you get the eye roll and like dad i know you know like that sort of reaction is pretty typical right and I'm sure I gave my dad a lot of that as well. Um, but, you know, I guess in hindsight, yeah, I probably appreciate it more now than I, I would have then. But I do think then, like, I think there was a part of me that, that knew it was, it was good to get that, that role model, that guidance, that, you know, that positive message. Um, you know, I think that was, that, was, that was big. How many kids were there in your family? Two, just myself and my younger sister. Younger sister, awesome. cool. Yeah. So How much younger is your sister than you? My sister is uh, just about three years younger than me, two and a half years. Um, yeah, so she lives in she lives in Toronto. She has a couple of kids of her own, uh, married, and she's a social worker. Um, and so, uh, you know, has a has a very very different career than I do in some ways, and in other ways very similar. Like we work with people, and we, I mean, I, I sort of I sort of see coaching as being this like thing that no matter if you're in any profession that has to do with people you know, you have hopefully good instinctual coaching skills, you know, how to, how to connect and how to, how to, how to get your messages across in the right way and to scale those messages. And and I, I know my sister's job day to day is really different than mine, but I know her, her, her real, her real thing is getting out in the community and connecting with people. Cool. What was your mom's uh, role in your life growing up uh, as an influence in you? Uh, oh, well, I mean, I think, you know, my mom, my mom and I are, are probably, uh, more similar. Well, it's funny. Yeah. We're, we're very similar in some ways, you know, and, and my mom is, um, my mom's a, um, a pretty, pretty cerebral individual and, and, um, you know, uh, quite analytical. She was a computer programmer. Um, that's what, she ended up falling into. So basically they had us and and my mom was at home with us until I was probably about 10. And then she went back to work and actually back to school, then back to work and landed computer programming, you know, back in whatever, 1985 when, you know, computer, computer programming. I mean, God, I, I don't think that was really on anybody's register at that point, but you know, my mom being female and obviously, you know, uh, into this budding career as a computer programmer, which, you know, you didn't, didn't really understand what that meant in 1985, but, um, you know, my mom, uh, my mom, my mom has that side to her, right. That analytical side and, and that sort of like, I don't know, just can kind of size situations up and has a, as a, as a, as a, is a thinking mind, I guess you could say. And, and that for sure is a, a big influence on me. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom also comes from like a farming background. So she has um, you know, she didn't, you know, uh, she didn't grow up with a whole lot. Um, they were second generation, I guess, Canadian. Um, her family had moved over from, uh, Scotland and, and landed in Prince Edward Island. And her dad, uh, has a grade seven education. Um, you know, left school at, at, at 13 years old to basically work on the farm and, and needed to get the, the work done. And, and so she grew up, you know, not having running water, not having a bathroom, you know, basically going to the outhouse at night. And so her upbringing, you know, where money was extremely tight and food was extremely scarce and resource and luxury was virtually non-existent. Um, you know, my mom's got a real kind of like, um, 
let's just say down to earth uh, style about her. I mean, she drives a 1996 Toyota Corolla with 290,000 <laughs> kilometers on it and, and drives that thing like, you know, refuse would, would never think to go and get that thing replaced. Right. Like that is just like, why would you bought, why would you do that? It works and it's perfectly functional and fine. And so, you know, I think that there's a, there's a part of, a part of me that is, is definitely resonates with that. And I guess that's another thing that, that my mom is pretty influential with just in, in terms of her values. Cool. So what, um, what drove you towards, um, sort of a, well, t- tell, tell me the story of your educational process getting into university and, and sort of discovering what you discovered in university and, and where it took you. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like I, I, I think in, in high school, I, I want to say there's been a little theme in my life of let's just say having a passion to do something and then maybe second guessing if, if I really wanted to put the time in to get that done and and maybe contemplating an easier path. Like I I've always kind of had that like flirting with the, ah, this will just be easier. It'll get the job done. And, and, and let's just, let's just do the simple thing rather than the, the hard thing to do. But then I always, would, you know, gut check and find myself like moving back towards the hard thing because I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I think, you know, moving to Calgary, I, I moved to Calgary as a speed skater actually, cause I had grown up as a, a hockey player, like everybody else in, in Canada. And I was a competitive swimmer and I kind of was getting sick of both sports and speed skating was just something I took to pretty quickly. But the nice thing about speed skating is that, um, it got me exposed to Calgary um, and, you know, at this point it's like 1991, right? So Calgary's just come off the 88 Olympics and there's this whole infrastructure of high performance sport that I was like, I just didn't know existed in Ottawa. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I worked out at Carleton university, interestingly with Lauren Goldenberg, uh, you know, and Lauren, right? Mm-hmm. So Lauren was the, Lauren was the, uh, Lauren was the personal trainer, I guess, at the time at the Nautilus training center at Carleton university with another guy named Hugh, Hugh Gallagher. <laughs> Gallagher taught me how to lift weights when I was, you know, I was like, this is, and that's what I loved. I'm like, I love the weight room. Like this is never mind sport. Like I just love working out and I love lifting weights and I loved being, you know, physically active. And it was so interesting that, you know, I, I get to Calgary and that was my viewpoint of sport was Nautilus at Carleton university. And all of a sudden I'm here in Calgary and it's like, Oh my God, there's this whole, training center and weight room and, you know, sports psychologists, nutritionists, and all this, this whole, this whole world opened up to me. So I moved out, um, originally because I thought, Hey, it's, uh, I was ready to kind of get away from home and, you know, just be on my own. And, and I was like, this sounds like a good idea. I'll come to Calgary. And, you know, I was, uh, originally, you know, not quite sure what I wanted to do until I landed on becoming a strength coach. And that, that just got me into kinesiology. And from there, things just dovetailed, you know, onto, uh, onto some more education, but, um, yeah. So you were, you were a skater training using weights and that attracted you to strength training and that's why you went into 100%. Yeah. Cool. 100%. Another, another name that some of your listeners may know, uh, Andre Benoit, um, yeah. Andre was a luge athlete actually. And so the strength coach that was in Calgary at the time was a guy named Charles Pollockay, who most, you know, everyone knows Charles and, 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 uh, you know, I, I showed up to Calgary and I was like, okay, Jesus, you could have a career doing this. I never even thought about that. And I remember sitting in my very first uh, year of uh, kinesiology and I was taking a biomechanics course and sitting beside me is Andre Benoit. 
and Andre Benoit is now back at school because he's just wrapped up his uh, uh, games in Albertville as a luge athlete. So he's now moving on from sport. And he's like, listen, I, you got to help me get through this biomechanics course. And if you help me get through biomechanics, I'll help you become a strength coach. And so literally I tutored, I tutored Andre in, in his assignments in biomechanics and got him through biomechanics. And I, I, I loved the gym. And then I just, you know, wait, the like, training was everything, but I just needed some guidance. And, and Andre kind of pointed me in the direction of all of his experiences that he had working under Charles and as an Olympic athlete. And the two married up because I was an athlete and, you know, learning more and, and, and wow. uh, yeah, that's how, that's how it all came together. So you were in Calgary, um, really at a, a very, um, transactional period of time where, like you said, things, uh, there was money there from post Olympics. There was uh, sort of this development of, of a lot of people who've now become really very successful in performance sport, including yourself, but the Dave Smiths and the Steve Norris's and all these guys. And I interviewed Dave a little bit ago, and then uh, all the gang that you were there with Stu McMillan and stuff like that. So describe that as you came out of school and started to work in that space, well, how did that all sort of come together? I guess it was an internship or something. And then, and then you guys sort of congealed in this little mass that, that you've expressed to me in prior conversations as very powerful in your career as well. Oh, well, I mean, you know, honestly, it, I wish it was as structured as that. I mean, I, I would say now I've worked really hard in my career to create structure and pathway for those young uh, aspiring performance coaches who are coming up behind me. But at the time, honestly, like, uh, it was, it was, uh, there was nothing. It was literally, it was literally me getting to Calgary, uh, training at the Olympic training center here as a speed skater for, I don't know, two, three years, but not really into it. Like I, I was okay. Like a kind of a national development level athlete, but enough that I got exposed to training. Um, and I met Charles and, and I remember, it, I remember distinctly, it was like, you know, I was so done with sport. I was like contemplating it and I'm like, nah, I'm done. I'm, I, I want to be a strength coach. And I, and I contacted Charles to say, Hey Charles, like I, I want to learn as much as humanly possible about becoming a strength coach. What do I, what do I have to do? And Charles said, well, you can help me out. He said, one of my first things I did to help him out was go to, you know, again, back in the day before sounds like I'm, I'm dating myself, but it's just the reality. Like I, I went to the library and photocopied journal articles for him, like photocopy them, give them to him. And, you know, like, uh, you know, I'd go out to his house and I'd write programs. I'd be like, tell me what you think about this program. And he'd look through it and be like, ah, this is good. Nah, this is not so good. And and literally, you know, at the time, like he paid me just in supplements, actually, like he gave me like, you know, egg protein and stuff that he didn't want, I guess. <laughs> but at the end of the day, like that's how it started. And I worked um, as a security guard in a hospital. That's how I paid my bills. And I did this for free because this was the fun part. And so I started working with athletes um, literally within a year of doing that. So kind of 90, 1997, I was like programming for free. There was no role. There was no position. It was just me, you know, driving out to Charles's place in Chestermere, getting feedback on programming, asking him what I should read, like what direction I should go. And sort of like a sensei that teaches you like, you know, karate or whatever, because, you know, and Charles has got that background and actually now uses that as part of his business title. But at the time, it's kind of what it was. It was his lineage. He was like, okay, hey, go read this, go do that. You got to read this author. Uh, don't read that stuff. It's not good. This stuff, you know, so it was sort of giving my compass a bit of a sense of direction and I just ran with it. And, and mm. 
by 1997, I was programming for speed skaters and I had my first crop of speed skaters that some of whom went to the Olympics in uh, Nagano. And I worked with uh, the women's hockey team actually as an assistant strength coach, again, all volunteer. Like I did not get paid a penny for any of this. It was just purely, you know, for experience. And, um, and uh, yeah, essentially that next year, there was a bit of an exodus. Charles went down to um, uh, uh, the U S um, there's a bit of a switch up in Calgary with some other uh, strength coaches that were there. And, and I kind of got my first team. Uh, but again, that summer, like I worked with the women's Alpine team in, I think it was 1999 in the summer. And I got a jacket. That was my, that was my pay. I got a team, a team <laughs> jacket. And I, I seriously worked Friday, Saturday night, 6, a, 6 PM to 6 AM night shifts in the hospital. And I would work during the, you know, obviously a student and, graduating my kinesiology degree by about that point and uh yeah just trying to soak up as much as humanly possible about training but calgary was such a great place to be like it just was it was it wasn't just like there was so much happening you know we had um mike's michael smith a decathlete i don't know if you remember mike smith he was a one of canada's best decathletes who was trained by less romantic um, Donovan Bailey was coming in and out at the time. And that meant, you know, then I met Stu McMillan and Stu connected me to Dan. And the, this was just like this hub of like high performance sport that just started to flourish. And, uh, I gotta be honest, like it was just a really cool time, not even knowing that I was in the middle of it. Mm. Uh, but there was nothing formal. It was all just people who loved it, just trying to figure out how to make a go of it more than anything. It's incredible. You know, like, uh, you know, we have, similar but dissimilar backgrounds and I think uh, of our generation I'm a little bit older than you but still the same sort of concept that you had to sort of dig and do a lot of stuff for very little when you look at um, how things have changed even in the last 10 years I think quite substantially in the industry um, do you look at it in a sense from a prideful perspective that you know it's become legitimized or do you look at it to some degree that the young guys don't necessarily have to um, sort of pay their, for lack of a better term, pay their dues that way in the same way, or do you, do you think it's a good thing? Um, you know, I, I don't know. And it, it, maybe it ties back to, it ties back to my, my upbringing a little bit. You know, I, I've always, I've always been into education, like into teaching others. And, um, I think that, uh, as, as I was coming through that time period and, and just knowing how um, hard it was to get um, in, you know, get into the club, so to speak, I always thought to myself, I was like, man, somebody should organize something here. Like somebody should create something that makes this just a little bit easier to get into rather than you having to like know the right person and get into the right place. And then, you know, it, a lot of things had to line up to, to make a go of it. Like there was no, you weren't putting your application in anywhere, um, and making this, you know, getting, getting a, getting a position as a strength coach. Um, I just think that that was something that I always recognized and, and coming out of my experience, that was one of the things I worked really hard on at the university when I was, um, when I was there more was to, to build a bit of a pathway. And we had, I think, I think at last count, we had 85, 85 students come through our strength and conditioning practicum at the University of Calgary, um, which was a really unique experience. And I'm not trying to like blow my own horn here. Like it's, it's, um, uh, other people were involved. Like Stu was involved, Stu McMillan, uh, Jason Poole, Scott Ma, 
um, other, other strength coaches were, were a part of this fraternity and, 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 and group of people that's got together to like, you know, help mentor the next generation of, of strength coach. And we had, yeah, last count, I think it was almost 90, almost 90 strength coaches who came through the program, many of whom now who work in professional sport and across the country. And, you know, to me, I think that giving them that opportunity and making it a little bit easier is, is not something that I feel as, um, I feel it's a great thing and I feel like it's a big positive, but there's still that need to measure, um, the need for experience in our profession. Like that's the one thing that I think sometimes young strength coaches don't realize is it wasn't that I paid my dues. It's that I really needed to gain experience that couldn't just be obtained from a textbook. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just, you can't go to school to learn this stuff. Like you don't learn this in kinesiology. You don't learn this in an athletic therapy degree. Like you don't learn those skills of coaching program design, like, you know, uh, how to understand a sport. Like it's, it's, it really requires a broad, uh, number of years of experience to get to that level. And maybe that's the one thing that we underestimate with our young, young aspiring strength coaches these days is that, we're, we're very used to the Wikipedia of, of our, of, of, of knowledge. Like if I have a question, I Google it, I get an answer and the answer is very clear. And, and, and unfortunately I think in our profession, it just takes time to get experience and experience is something that you can't shortcut. And, and maybe that's the only thing that I would say, is, and it's not a negative about paying dues. It's just that people getting into the profession need to know it takes time to get that experience. Just, mm-hmm. uh, just, just, just the reality. Well, it's not just um, our profession. It's any profession these days. There's really is an upramp, um, very fast upramp of because of the technology in terms of information. But yeah. there is an experience deficit along the way, uh, and sometimes you know the information can supersede it. But uh, yeah. you know, I, I've always been impressed by your um, your ability to combine the concept of, of being a, a true sports scientist and being an applied side guy, where does that come from? And you, what, what, what was, what drove that in you? Because not everybody is attracted to both sides of that, that animal. Um, I think, I think it has to do with, with my very first introduction to the profession um, by, by, um, you know, people, people like Charles. And it's actually really interesting. Like, I remember asking Charles, I, I was like, Hey, what do you, you know, what, give me some advice. Like, what should I, what should I do? And, um, basically the advice went something like, um, look the part, which I mean, you can take that for however you want, but it is basically saying like, you need to, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to be, if you're going to be asking people to do this stuff, you, you have to live it a little bit. So I took that for what it was. Um, read lots was another big piece of advice. And, and that was a pretty, you know, broad thing that he said, but I mean, I know, I know it was something that I, that I took, took to heart about making sure that I was reading a ton, but I remember asking him after, you know, uh, a certain number of years, I was like, Hey, I think I need to get my master's. And he said, nah, you don't need that. It's a waste of time. Um, and he's like, it's not going to give you anything. You're just going to go learn more crap from the same people that you could just go learn on your own. And I was like, yeah, you know, uh, for some reason it just didn't sit right because I was like, well, you've got your masters. And I feel like that's, you know, if you've got your masters and that's something that brings credibility, then, you know, maybe I should open my mind to the possibility that it's something I should look into. And I think at this point, you know, really a lot of my friends at the time and, and people I was around, like, I just, I guess I was just really intrigued by the science of what we do. 
like I do think there's there's science is science is about discovering and observing, you know, observing new phenomena and generating new knowledge and and understanding the limits of what we understand and what we don't understand. And I think that's there's a process there that I've always felt is very close to what I do as a coach. And to me, it was just very natural because I was inquisitive, curious, and trying to figure out how stuff worked. So if that program worked, well, how, why did it work? How did it work? Why didn't it work? How could it maybe have worked better? And I started to realize, you know, at some point that like to do that, you have to measure something and you have to have, like, you have to go back to science and how science arrives at the way it is today. Um, and, and, uh, one book that I really enjoy, uh, enjoy reading on this topic, it's called the art of scientific investigation, but it's like this, like, it's this really short read. It's only 150 pages maybe, but it goes through all kinds of different scientific discoveries and how people arrived at this stuff. Like, and it's not like scientists doing bench work, you know, a lot of times discoveries happen, like you end up somewhere totally different than when you started. And to me, that was just like, that was really cool that what I, what I know today may, may be proven wrong a hundred years from now, like that, that, that stands out to me as being something that keeps you curious, hum, hungry, humble, looking for more understanding that there's always this next thing that we're, we're moving towards. And, and I guess I, in some ways with coaching, I always approached it like that too, you know, like I, and they really always married up. So uh, to me, it's like the coaching comes first because you have to coach first and you have to connect with people first. And, at the end of the day, my job is not to like create scientific experiments around my athletes, but at the uh, other side is that my, I try to bring the science up behind my coaching. So as I coach and learn more and do more, I have, I try to have the science come up behind it to help support, you know, what I'm doing and, and help me understand more about what works and what doesn't, how, how things work. Cool. What's been the personal cost to you um, when you reflect back to being you're know, working towards being great at what you do. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think on some level, the, the personal cost has come at being restless. Like I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ever feeling very comfortable with what I'm doing and I'm never feeling satisfied in the sense. And it's not like a, a financial desire, but like, my mind is always sort of going, you know what I mean? And I think that's the cost is that it's never, it's never just quiet and done and parked. There's always like, you know, there's always another thing, you know, and, and in some ways it's addictive and, and, you know, in other ways you have to know when to shut that down. Like, you know, it, because it can become all consuming where that's all you have in life. And, and I know that, you know, for me, that balance has been important and, you know, I'll be honest, like my, my path and journey to get to where I've, I've, I've gotten to in, in my career has not been carved out for me ever. There was never a single job I applied for ever. Like it's always been by like, yeah, I was doing 20 million different things. I created value for something that was meaningful to me. And somebody ultimately recognized the value and said, wow, we, we think there's actually value there too. We're willing to do something for you now to support what you're already doing. It was always, it was always kind of like the, the job always came after what I was already doing, I guess. Mm -hmm. you could say. And, and in that, in that frame of mind, I, I think that I've never, I've always balanced a lot. Like I, I, I did my master's full-time while I was coaching full-time. I did my PhD full-time while I was working full-time and had a family 
like never, never did, never did the, never was it just done simply where I got my master's and then did that and then applied for the job and then got the job. It's always been concurrent, right? Like this mm-hmm. stuff has always been happening together. And I think consequently to that, the cost on me has just been, it's, you know, it's been a lot of work. Um, it's been, it's been, uh, you know, busy in, in my, in my brain trying to get stuff done. Um, and I guess the cost is trying to figure out where the balance comes to be able to shut it down and, and to, you know, to be able to not be consumed by it to the point of, you know, minimizing my family and, and my own things I like to do in life. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's you, a you're, you're a, a, a divorcee like me. What did you learn about yourself going through that in, in, in a, as a part of your life? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, hindsight is 2020 and, and, you know, what I, what I understand about the demise of my, my first marriage in hindsight today and versus in the moment when it was occurring were two different things. Um, I, I got married. I, I, when I moved to Calgary, my first real serious relationship in Calgary was with this gal. Um, and, and we got together, I was 21, she was 20 and we were, we were, we were together, uh, through our, through our twenties and we had a great relationship. Um, and you know, when we got married, um, again, I think I was 28, she was 27. It's pretty young. Like, like even when I think back, I'm like, Oh, it's crazy that we were that young getting married, but that's what we did. Um, but where, where my relationship uh, fell apart was, I think, kind of twofold. I think on the one hand, um, it's sort of like a garden, right? Like you're, you, you have, if you have a garden in your, uh, in your backyard and you plant seeds and you water it and you make sure that there's, it's fertilized and you give it sunlight and you do all these things, the garden grows and, it, and it's beautiful. And, and you can ignore it for a little bit and the garden might give you some signs that it's not too happy. Like plants start to die and maybe, you know, you're not getting as many vegetables out of it. And there's always a point in time there where you can come back out in the early stages and put some more water on it and give it some more sunlight and it comes back to life. But there's a point in time when you've been neglected it, that the garden just, it, it dies. And when it dies, it has to be replanted. And I think in some ways, my marriage, like that first relationship, like that's kind of how it went. Like, I think, you know, you, you're together for a long time. You don't have a good scope of, of life and like how life can catch up on you. And you end up becoming like, you know, two ships passing in a night doing your thing. And it's easy to have that uh, catch you by surprise. And, and it's not one of those things that you are aware of when it's happening. You just know when it's there. Like, it's like, I don't know when this happened, but man, we're here. Like we, we're, 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 uh, this isn't working anymore. And and that's a scary place to be in some ways, because that's like, it's hard to bring it back after that. And I'm going to say possibly it, it's not possible. You know, you have to redefine it somehow if you're going to make it work. And, and I think for us, it was just, uh, um, looking where I was in my life. It was, it was, it was just better for us to part ways and, and to, you know, have a non-traditional, non-traditional way of, of raising our, our 11 year old, which is, you know, we have two separate houses, but we coexist and work really well together. And we are both friends and, and supportive of each other as it pertains to making sure that our 11 year old's healthy and happy. And, and, and we're much healthier and happier ourselves because of having done that. That's awesome to be able to look back at it that way. So, uh, 
I felt it was probably a valuable proposition for people to hear. Sometimes we go yeah. through these things. We don't always respect what it was that, uh, what we went through and what we, what we yeah. learned about ourselves. You know, yeah, totally. And, and I'll tell you something, Scotty, like I, I probably because of the fact that we are, you know, dealing with Olympic cycles, like I, I my, 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 my real passion is Olympic athletes. I, I work with professional athletes too. And I love, I love that. Actually, I love working with pro athletes, but I think Olympic athletes has been where my heart and soul has been, I suppose, you know, um, we, we kind of work in these four year buildups, you know, like we're like building up towards the pinnacle and it happens every four years and we, we go for it. And, and, and it's funny, like I always sort of see life in these four year chunks and I reflected at the last Olympics that God, you know, I can never have predicted my life would be where it would have been at the start of those four years. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I never would have been able to accurately predict if you said, Hey, 2002, Matt, where are you going to be in 2006? I would have said, well, my life is going in this direction and this is what I would expect. Not even close. 2010, where would you expect yourself to be? Not even close. 2014, not even close. 2018, not even close to where I would have expected to be. So in so many four-year chunks, like I, that's why I feel like life is this thing where you've got to be, you have to have a bit of a sense of adventure about it and you've got to be you know, when, when, when the good times are good, you know, that they don't last. And when the bad times are bad, you know, that they don't last. And you know, that there's something around the corner and you don't know what that is, but it's there. And, mm -hmm. and you've got to be sort of open and excited about embracing it, both the possibility of it being really horrible, but also being great because that's just how life is, right? We just don't know what we're going to get next. Sometimes. How do you, how do you apply that wisdom to your coaching? Um, I think when it comes to coaching, I think I realized that like I, my, my, my best conversations with coaches has been sort of like when we close the door to the office and we look at each other and the uh, facade of, you know, being a, being a knowledgeable expert is, is basically removed. And we look at each other and we say, what, what, like, what are we doing? Like, I have no idea. Like, I, I'm, I wonder if I even give anything positive in this situation. And of course, I know that we do, right? But it's asking that question about being like, coming from the place of being humble, coming from the place of being curious, coming from the place that like, if you're arrogant, you, you can't disarm ignorance. You can't disarm, like, arrogance is that thing that just like, you know, it, it, it blocks you from growth in my mind. Right. And, and I think that's probably where it comes in in my coaching is that I realize coaching is a bit of an adventure that way. Like you don't know what you're going to get. You could put in, you could do absolute. I saw this at my first Olympic games that I actually attended. It was in Salt Lake city. And, and one of my, one of my, uh, he's a good friend now. And he's one of my favorite athletes of all time that I've worked with a guy named Jeremy Witherspoon, who was like talking like, this guy set more world records and has more world cup medals in the 500 meter than any human on the planet. Like the guy is a, a phenomenal athlete. And I remember watching him at the Olympic games and we had done absolutely everything perfectly to a T and the gun went off and he took one step and he slipped and he fell and he bambied and he got up and everyone looked at each other and said, what the hell happened? Like what happened? He, I mean, he, he was, he was, he was, that was it. 
and it was over. And the next day he went out and he skated the second 500 and he won it. And, but it was over. And it was like, it was just that moment of being like, yeah, you just don't know, I guess. Like you really just don't know. And you can't control that. Mm -hmm. All you can control is what your preparation is, what you're doing day in and day out. And your preparation is going to bring you confidence that you're going to get through it no matter what, not that it's necessarily going to be successful, but that you're going to get through it no matter what, and that you're going to be able to step to the line when the pressure's on and you're going to be able to deliver your best, best for that moment. And that to me is, that to me is, you know, similar to with, with life and, you know, coming back to even going through a divorce, like maybe that's the thing that you learn as you go through it. It's like, yeah, divorce was horrible. It was so stressful. It was having a one-year-old son and then splitting up with your partner. And then all the stuff that comes along with that is like dark, dark days and long, painful days. But, you know, similar to your preparation in life is your preparation brings you to that point and it gives you the tools to get through it. it. Doesn't prevent it from happening. It doesn't, it doesn't make it go any better necessarily. It just means that you have the tools to get through it. And I think with coaching, it's the same thing. Like I'm, I'm pretty realistic about the fact that, end of the day this is not about me at all like i give i give a small piece to an athlete um sometimes a little bit bigger in some situations than others my job is to set them up for success with as much of the tools that i have at my disposal to to share that with them and to hopefully allow them to go to line with that that sense of confidence and and and, you know they're 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 ready they feel prepared and they're able to do their best on that moment and i just realized that 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 that's the goal it's not necessarily you know, the reality of like winning the medal, like that, that, that's another step down there that you could do everything right and it could go wrong and you could do everything wrong and it could go right. And that's just life. Right. Yeah. What are a couple of things um, that you kind of believed were important as a performance coach when you were younger that maybe you don't believe anymore and have sort of changed or segued into other beliefs about what's important and what you do? Well, I think, I think the biggest thing is, you know, as a, as a strength coach, you know, I, I was a specialist in getting people strong and powerful and big, all the things that we traditionally use in, in the weight room to be able to develop physical abilities. And, um, I would say that one of the big things that's evolved over my um, career is understanding a little bit more broadly about what really influences performance. And some of this comes from my own stuff I've had to deal with, you know, like, I, uh, whether it's my, an injury I had or whatever, and I've had to get through it and I've had to figure out a different path, um, to be able to solve that. Um, and, and so I started to kind of broaden my view of like, okay, hold on a second. It's not all about that. Like performance, human performance is, is this like, it's this blend of ingredients and, and, and it has to be balanced. It can't be biased. You know, if I, you can't bias it to one ingredient or the other, it's got to be balanced. And there's a time point when a uh, certain ingredients needs to be added, you know, and that's, and that's, that is the, that is the, that is the most important part of, I think about performance is understanding how to get that balance. Right. So mm-hmm. Um, to me, I'd say that's probably a, a big thing is, you know, understanding in a bit more broad view, like how we have to get at performance and what, and what that means. Um, and understanding the different roles, the different tools in my toolbox plays in accomplishing that goal. And if the goal is to make, um, if the goal is to improve performance, that's not the same as making them stronger necessarily. It could be, 
maybe we do see someone we're like, Hey, we got to get them stronger to help them perform better. Um, but my job is not to make them stronger. My job is to help them perform. So that's the, that's the thing that has to come first. Mm-hmm. And I, I just say the second <clears throat> thing that backs that up is that, you know, I'm, I'm just a, I'm just a very, I'm, it's just a very big belief of mine that, um, it's really important to try to be on a quest of quantifying our impact, you know, and I, and I'll come back to those, those moments where I closed the door and I looked across the, the table to say, what are we doing anyways? How do we know we're making a difference? And, you know, the, I'll be asking that question of somebody I really respect. And, you know, the answer might be, I have no idea, no idea if I'm making a difference. And obviously that leads you towards wanting to measure something and, and uh, you know, quantify things. And, and you can't quantify everything. There's no human possible way that we can quantify everything that, that sort of goes into that soup of performance. But I guess when I look at that soup of performance, um, the second thing that comes is like, what can I measure in that soup? You know, and what can I, what can I, what can I understand from that blend of ingredients and how do, how can I generate new knowledge around what went into the soup to help sort of drive my profession, drive my knowledge base, um, help athletes perform. Um, that's, uh, it's been a big, uh, a big thing for me. It's that idea of kind of like, you got to figure out what matters because not everything matters for sure. You know, you, I, I know I've had quips with you before you've talked about like, you know, the days where VO two max testing for a <laughs> professional hockey team like, it doesn't matter, man. Like you can measure it, but just cause you can measure something doesn't mean that it's important. It just means you can measure it. Um, actually there's a really great documentary, uh, right now on Netflix, um, uh, on the, uh, Vietnam war by, um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've, if you've had a chance to watch oh, it, I watch it. Yeah. It's a great show. Oh man. There's just some <clears throat> unbelievable parallels to coaching, you know, parallels about how McNamara was trying to quantify everything, you know, and so quantifying the success of the war on, you know, body count and mm-hmm. bullets and this and that, you know, when you go down the list and you're like, man, but they lost the war. Like it didn't work. They were, they were way off track. And mm-hmm. it's just a perfect, brilliant example of like, you can't, you can't let, you can't let measurement and science run the, run the, run the roost. Like you have to have something come first performance and coaching and that stuff comes underneath. But I do think that stuff has to come underneath. Mm-hmm. And that's that idea of, finding what matters and, and figuring out a way to determine like these things are the things that matter. Mm-hmm. Then you're measuring what matters and then you're tracking them and measuring them. And then you're showing that you change those things. And that mm-hmm. sort of three-step process to me is like, you know, it's, it, it basically opens up this organic process of like performance is a, it's a blend of fit qualities and abilities that come in to formulate that thing. And, and somewhere in there, I'm trying to figure out the important things that matter for that person in that time, in that context. And then, how do I, how do I put a number to that if I can? Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes you can't, but that's uh, Yeah, I really like what you said at the end there, especially um, it's, you know, it, it's measuring what matters, but it's also contextually understanding when it matters and totally. when it doesn't matter and who it matters to. Yeah. Um, you know, you can, you could think something matters, but if you can't convince the people who are going to make the change, believe it matters then it doesn't matter any it only matters to you right so at the end of the day oh, yeah. it's a it's this blend of of so many different moving parts but uh, i absolutely agree with you that you know it all it's all part and parcel of the process of creating real 
performance and understanding what it is that you're achieving. Um, with the limited amount of time that I have left, um, I wanted to ask you what you believe really are the big drivers of individual human performance. Uh, do you think it comes down to talent and attitude? Do you come, think it comes down to preparation? What are, you, what are your, th- your views are the nugget drivers of, of true performance? I think, I think the nugget drivers are uh, internal drive. I think, I think people, you, you, you have to love what you do. I just think that that's just a reality. Like you could be the most talented person on the planet, but if you hate something, it's really, really hard to be good at it. Like it's, you gotta love it and you gotta love it a little bit obsessively. You know, it's gotta be something inside of you that just makes you wake up every day and say, Hey, I'm loving what I'm doing here. And that to me is a big question. I look to answer not necessarily by asking it explicitly, but I look around, I'm like, does this person love what they do? Mm -hmm. And if, and if I see that they don't love it, they're not happy. If you can tell that this is not giving them joy and not joy a hundred percent of the time, because that's unrealistic. You know, like you can't, can't expect that every single day you're going to love the thing that you do. But, you know, 90% of the time, you know, 90% of the time you wake up and you say, man, I love this. This is, this is exactly what I want to be doing. That to me is, that to me is the, that to me is the, probably the biggest one. And, and, and then coming up behind that is um, I, I still put preparation and, and work ethic over talent only because I've seen in so many cases where uh, the talent just wasn't there. Like you didn't like or it was masked, you know, like you could see, you couldn't see the talent. It was like, at first glance, you'd say that person is not talented. They have no, they are not going to be able to do whatever it is they want to do. There's no metal on the table here for that person. But because of work ethic and preparation and hard, like hard work pays off. And, and, and ultimately hard work and passion for what you do can override talent and it can, and it can be a big bridge. And, and I think that on some level, the hard work preparation has to be the second nugget. And then, you know, thirdly, I hate to say it, but you know, you do, you do need some physical talent. Like there's just no way that I could, you know, there's no way that you can take somebody that just doesn't have the genetic propensity to, to you know, let's say be a hundred meter finalist in, in the, in the, in the, in track and field. Like you just don't have, if you just don't have certain genetic makeup, it's going to be really tough to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, for a large majority of sports that I deal with on a regular basis, you know, they're not that, that they're not at that extreme end of human performance. You know, you can make up a lot with hard work and just dedication and commitment to it and love and passion for it. So, um, yeah. So I think in that order, you know, uh, your, your love, your love for the game, your work ethic, your ability to prepare, your willingness to prepare, and, and uh, not be afraid of hard work. And, and, and obviously, lastly, you, you find something that, you know, matches up a little bit with the talents that you, that you got. Cool. Last question. And then I got a jet, unfortunately. I would love to continue talking. But um, you're going to pass away someday in this world, uh, unfortunately. Hopefully, it's not for a long time. How do you, uh, how do you hope people remember you? Ah, wow. That's a, that's a, that's a big one. Um, I hope that, I hope that people will remember me for 
the father you know i was the husband i was i was the son i was the friend hopefully i hope those things come to mind because i think they're the most important you know and even though like it's easy to get that to get that balance mixed up in life i i really believe that that's the that's the gift like when i see my kids you know out in the world and, and you know i've got three boys now and those three boys are going to grow up and they're going to move on. And yeah, like when I'm pushing up daisies, they're, they're going to be off in the world and, and, and doing forging their own path. So hopefully, you know, the, the, what I did as a dad and, and what I was able to do as a husband is, is what sort of like, I hope, I hope that's at the forefront. And I think that maybe on a, on another, on another level is I just hope that as a professional, like, you know, in terms of what we're contributing is I hope that, you know, somehow the knowledge that I've been able to acquire because of people that have mentored me, you know, and, and, and I mentioned, you know, mentioned, uh, you know, a couple people, but I mean, I've had some amazing mentors, my PhD supervisor, Walter Herzog, and, and another co-supervisor, Per Agard, who tremendous guys who just, you know, came into my life at the perfect time and, and were really excellent mentors for me. They didn't even know they were doing it. Like, I, I think they were, providing the academic mentorship and research mentorship, but I was taking so much more from them. What I realized is my job is I kind of like take that stuff and I'm passing it on to my next group. And I'm hoping that, you know, somehow that that lineage is going to continue, you know, so that it's not so much people remembering me, but maybe remembering what, what it was I was able to pass on uh, to them. And hopefully they were able to pass on to the next. That's awesome. I'm going to end with, um, I usually read the person's purpose to them from a book that I discovered a few years ago by the day called the day you're born that mixes astrology with numerology, which I know as a scientist, you're not going to believe anyways, but uh, I like it anyways. You're a Leo six and your purpose is to create your identity and sense of self from what you believe to protect your truth with your mask to fight for truth and justice by choosing the way of the rebel who attacks its opposition or the way of the charmer who seduces others to accept their truth without a fight. The pursuit of specialness is always at the cost of peace. Very cool. I'll finish that. Finish yeah. with that. Dude, thanks for taking the time. Love Thank talking you. to you and uh, maybe we'll have to do it again sometime. Absolutely, man. Anytime. Take care. Take care.